Rahim was an individual that showed up in the country where I was posted, important facilitator for Al-Qaeda. And a facilitator is an individual who's not necessarily a trigger puller or someone who blows up bombs, but he's the one that buys the guns, the bullets, the bombs, provides the logistics, enables an operation. And he was very good at it. And with what we were hearing from Al-Qaeda chatter and such, there was expectation that he was there to launch or direct a terrorist operation. I had to bump in him in a particular way where he'd be willing to talk to me and trust me enough to share what he knew about Al-Qaeda and what their operations were. How did you do it? I led him to believe that he had been arrested by the local government. He was in what we made to look like a police prison. It actually wasn't. We had fabricated it out of an old, unused police station. What was your pitch to him? My pitch wasn't terribly kind, the initial one. The initial one was I gave him an opportunity to use my help to keep this government from sending him away by cooperating with me. I can keep you from being sent away, but I could also help out your family because this guy was very much a family man and a very devoted family man. And we had identified that through our collection against him. And I used my understanding of his humanity, really, to try to leverage that. So it was a risk I had to take, and there wasn't a real high probability he was going to say yes. But I guess over time, I was able to establish that trust because I took care of his family, who needed some medical assistance, they needed some financial assistance. I kept all my promises, which you have to do as a case officer, and he turned into one of our better penetrations of Al-Qaeda. That CIA officer who kept all his promises to the foreign agent he calls Rahim That's Douglas London. I'm retired from the Central Intelligence Agency's clandestine service, where I served as an operations officer for 34 years. How do you assure them that their identity will remain a secret? Well, they have to not only trust the case officer, they have to trust the institution. Because they not only have to believe in you, in your word, you'll deliver, but they know they're working for an organization, they're working for a government. So they have to have some confidence that the institution as well will protect them. One way the institution, the United States government, protects agents like Rahim is by keeping their identities a very closely guarded secret. Their value to national security is so high, and the consequences of their exposure so significant, that strict controls govern who can and cannot have access to their information, and how documents with this information should be handled. With former President Donald Trump under indictment for allegedly breaching these strict controls, a breach that, quote, could put at risk the national security of the United States, I wanted to find out just what that potential risk is, not only personally for someone like Rahim if his identity were to be compromised, but for CIA efforts to recruit new foreign agents in the future, and what impact all this might have on the United States' ability to gather intelligence, to understand the threats its rivals pose, and protect its interests. The indictment unsealed last week specifies 37 counts, including concealing documents, making false statements, obstructing justice, and 31 counts of, quote, willful retention of national defense information. It lists documents found at Trump's home in Florida that are labeled secret and top secret. 
The category, top secret, is the highest category of classification, which means that releasing the intelligence would do, quote, exceptionally grave damage to U.S. national security. The brief descriptions of the classified documents in the indictment are a bewildering alphabet soup of acronyms to anyone who hasn't spent a lot of time in the U.S. intelligence community. HCS. Five eyes, no four. Size signaling. Signer. Imcon. Secret level skiff. SCI. Top secret. And confidential. So today, you're going to meet three former U.S. intelligence officials with collectively more than 80 years of experience. They can tell you what the counts in the indictment mean, what the story is behind those acronyms, and how threatening or not all of this is to U.S. national security. I'm Peter Bergen, and this is a special bonus episode of In the Room. Just a quick note before we get into the story. I hope you'll go to audible.com slash news, where you'll find my recommendations for other news, journalism, and nonfiction listening. That's audible.com slash news. Now, let's get back to the show. To understand how classified U.S. government intelligence is normally handled, you need to know about something called a SCIF. It's spelled S-C-I-F. It's a sensitive, compartmented information facility. That's Mark Stout. I'm a former U.S. intelligence officer, and these days I'm an intelligence historian. And this is Alma Katsu. Hi. She worked at the U.S. National Security Agency, which listens in on signals intelligence from countries around the world. She also worked at the CIA in an intelligence career that lasted three and a half decades. SCIFs are protected enclosures where you can discuss and retain classified information. They're uninteresting to look at. They look like any other office space, you know, lots of boring cubicles. What makes them special is literally the walls and the doors. The walls are protected against radiation leaking out. There's a combination lock on the door. They are basically vaults. All SCIFs are not the same, you know, like a secret level SCIF is a little bit easier engineering-wise and to get permissions and all that. So in order to get into a SCIF, you have to be able to demonstrate that you have the proper security clearance to be in there or be escorted. You know, there's not a lot of SCIFs out there. They might produce one for the director of central intelligence to have in his house to safeguard documents or something like that. And in some agencies, if a visitor who doesn't have the clearance level is brought in, they will literally shout out uncleared coming through or words to that effect, and sometimes even have like a little rotating red flashing light in the ceiling so that people will know, like, keep your conversations particularly discreet because there's an unclean person in here at the moment. Mar-a-Lago is not a secure location by any stretch of the imagination. Absolutely not. This is a pretty much the epitome of you know, the kind of place that you shouldn't have classified materials. Trump bought Mar-a-Lago in 1985. It's a 20-acre property right on the ocean, which he got at the fire sale price of $5 million. 
At the time, he and his then-wife, Ivana, weren't exactly welcome into the local Palm Beach country clubs, reportedly because their garish display of wealth clashed with the town's decidedly more discreet sensibilities. Trump turned the sprawling private estate into his own club, where he was in charge of who was in and who was out. Mar-a-Lago has all the distinct hallmarks of Trump's style, glitzy chandeliers and lots of gold trim, quite the opposite of a uninteresting-to-look-at skiff. The club's security is also a far cry from a skiff. Even during Trump's presidency, members could just walk right up to him in the buffet line. Guests have included true Trump believers like Lieutenant General Michael Flynn, celebrities like Alex Rodriguez, well-known criminals like Jeffrey Epstein, and a steady stream of Trump fans. It's a party for the president. The president would never do a party that wasn't the best. We look forward to seeing you inside. Come on along. At least a few unwanted visitors have also made their way inside Mar-a-Lago while Trump was president, and also in the years since. A scammer posing as a member of the Rothschild banking family. She was able to go there and just breeze right past security. No questions asked. She didn't show an ID, according to her lawyer. And a Chinese national who entered the club while Trump was president with a thumb drive containing malicious malware. She gave different excuses at three security checkpoints for why she was at Mar-a-Lago, including once saying she was there to use the pool, even though she was wearing an evening gown. She lied about why she was trespassing at Mar-a-Lago, she was then jailed and later deported back to China. The parade of visitors continued as usual after Trump arrived with boxes of classified documents in January 2021. When you read in the indictment, there were about 150 events with tens of thousands of guests at Mar-a-Lago in the context of these documents being stored willy-nilly in the bathroom and in the ballroom. What did you think? Well, my first thought is as a predator, as a spy, how would I have access? Those documents were either the Russians, the Chinese, or the Iranians. That's former CIA officer Douglas London again. He served in the CIA from the early 1980s until 2019. So he understands how spies think. You know, you have to think about how am I going to attack a target if I want to know about a particular program or issue or operation? You try to find the easiest way. One way to make it less easy for an enemy to get intelligence about a particular program or issue or operation is to closely guard access to it by classifying the documents that contain the intelligence. Documents are classified to protect the means of collection, essentially to protect the sources so that we can continue collecting that information and protect the sources who are doing it. The sourcing and the collection technology is usually the most sensitive aspect, not the information itself. The actual secrets itself generally have a short shelf life. It's about a particular event that's going to happen. So if you find variously out about Iranian war plans, Russian war plans, Chinese war plans, you know how many planes, tanks, and, and where they might attack. But the way you collected it is what's most sensitive. The only reason we would know about Iranian war plans is because we're collecting it through sensitive means. If it's a human source, you want to protect their identity. If it's a technical source, you don't want it to be discovered. You want it to go on tomorrow and be fruitful. If it's a particular method, you know, same thing. Is there a process for classification? I mean, is there some person or office that uh, sort of makes these determinations? 
There is a standard classification process, and anyone who has a clearance has to yearly take an annual reminder of the declassification process. So there's actually a limited number of classifiers. They're generally the president and agency heads, and they then delegate that authority down to classify. You'd have thought that in the digital age, there'd be a better way to track all these documents. Why are we still printing these out and losing track of these kinds of sensitive documents? Well, you know, that's the rub of it. Uh, the person with the most sensitive job has the least controls. That's the president. I would tell you every United States intelligence community agency does, in fact, audit all their documents. Every time you open one up, every time you print one up, there is a track record. That's how they found Mr. Tashira, the airman who leaked all those documents in Discord, as quickly as they did. So, you know, the CIA, DIA, Department of Energy, wonderful controls. You get all sorts of audits. Not so for the president. The president can print out whatever he wants or have his aides print out. And there's not the same system because that's the president. The president can do as he or she would wish. Other objective criteria for classification? Uh, it is objectively classified in terms of the amount of damage that could be caused to the United States government. I could tell you from reading over the, the headings and the classifications, each one of these 31 documents could do significant damage if exposed. Aside from the different levels of classification, the indictment is full of those confusing acronyms. If you're a member of the intelligence community and know what they stand for, they provide a lot of clues about what exactly was being protected in the decision to classify the documents Trump allegedly kept in his personal possession. Some of them are pretty intuitive. SI is signals intelligence. That's cell phones, telemetry, uh, radio. Others, not so much. TK is talent keyhole. Yeah, he said talent keyhole. That's our satellite capabilities. Okay. Imcon is imagery of some sort. It could come from unmanned aerial platforms or other sensitive technology. Orcon is originator control. That means whoever produced this document, who produced the information, before another agency or organization can further disseminate that or share it to either another U.S. government agency or a foreign government partner, they would have to go back to the originator for their approval to do so. Clearly, a lot of thought and energy has gone into this classification system and a lot of rigor. Maybe even a little too much rigor. It's been reported that on average in the United States, three records are marked as classified every second. And intelligence agencies have sometimes been accused of over-classifying materials, hiding too much from the public. But in the case of the 31 classified documents that are specifically mentioned in the charges against Trump, there's no question they deserve to be classified, according to the three former U.S. intelligence officials we spoke with. As somebody who, you know, I believe that the government overclassifies a lot of things, but there are also very legitimate secrets that we need to keep. And just looking at the description of these documents here that's in the indictment, yeah, this is pretty clearly secrets we need to keep. Mark Stout served for more than a decade as an intelligence analyst at the U.S. State Department and at the CIA. He's particularly concerned about six of the documents mentioned in the indictment, all of which are marked top secret and special handling, and all of which are described as being about White House intelligence briefing. I think that's almost certainly a reference to either the president's daily brief or to documents 
given to or briefed to President Trump during the president's daily brief. And yeah, you don't want foreign powers to know what the intelligence community is telling the president in a very closed meeting in the Oval Office, right? That's just it shouldn't be shouldn't be out there. And just so we're clear, the president's daily brief is sort of the crown jewels on a certain level. I mean, you're not bringing it to the president unless it's important. Absolutely. That's right. Yeah. You can think of it as a very highly classified newspaper, somewhere maybe on the order of eight or 10 pages. And you really have to have a high priority issue in order to make it into the president's daily brief. It's either going to be an article about something you know the president is interested in already, or that the president doesn't know about, but his hair is going to be on fire when you tell him. I wanted to go through the list of items that concern him in detail, so he could shed some light on the clues in the descriptions. So if you look on page 32, item 24, top secret HDSPS. In one instance, the document involves some sort of signals interception or cyber collection of information, as well as human intelligence, meaning espionage, identified in the document with the term HCS. It's only the most sensitive espionage operations that get put under the HCS channel. A lot of much more, I hesitate to use the word, but more vanilla reporting from espionage is not in HCS. So this is the good stuff, if you will. And this document concerns the, quote, military activity of a foreign country. Not clear where, where it is, what it is, but this is not just some tidbit that is unimportant to American national security. No, absolutely not. And the fact that this information about the military activity of foreign country is classified, among other things, in HCS channels means that there is some person or persons out there in that country, presumably, or at least working for that country's government, who are selling us secrets and are doing so at a particular risk to themselves. What risk would that be? Well, it depends on what country we're talking about. If you're a North Korean, for instance, and you're convicted of espionage, you're going to be executed and your family is probably going to be sent to some re-education camp. If HCS information gets into the wrong hands, somebody's going to be sent to prison if they're not shot. Aside from the obvious ethical implications of blowing the identity of a foreign agent, there are other considerations. For starters, it takes an enormous amount of time and effort to recruit new agents. One of the most demanding jobs in the world is getting someone to betray the secrets of their country to the CIA. As Douglas London knows from decades of doing it, cultivating these sources is really hard. That's why there aren't a lot more spies in the world running around. So basically, you're, you're playing a bait and switch with someone who you have to approach under one guise, usually a, a false pretension of interest, because you need an opportunity to assess their access to sensitive information and their willingness to betray it to the United States government. And then you have to cultivate a relationship with them in which you're manipulating that which you find out about them, ideally their hopes, their dreams, their interests, and uh, ideally their concerns with their own government in order to share that with the U.S. government. That takes a relationship that's you know akin to a, a confessional, where someone has the confidence in the case officer as if a member of the clergy to whom they could share their greatest secrets, their greatest concerns, and not have fear of of consequence, because they know the risk of doing so. I know you can't get into details of particular names and particular places, but how does this work? I mean, you're at a cocktail party, you kind of have a casual conversation. Well, it's called a bump. It's called a bump. 
the bump. It's the process of doing target analysis on whom you're pursuing. So you, Peter, for example, I would try to find out what hobbies do you have? Where do you go? Do you have brunch every Sunday at a particular restaurant and find a reason to be there? But I also have to think out when I go up to you, what is it I'm going to say that's going to make you go, oh, please have a seat and not just brush me off. The goal is to be able to secure a relationship which will be clandestine, concealed, that no one will be aware of it. So there's much less of bumping into people at receptions and cocktail parties and more targeting them to try to find a secure opportunity at which you don't have to worry about a digital footprint, about people seeing you, about phone calls, about emails. You have to, uh, like a salesman doing an elevator pitch, find some reason that they're going to be interested just to talk to you about anything, whether it's about fly fishing or studying butterflies or whatever it is you've contrived. And then having established the basis of that relationship on whatever that pretext is, slowly bringing them out of their shell where they're confiding into you what they really do, what they know, and their concerns and perhaps their needs and perhaps their grievances, as it would be the case with a good number of Russians or Iranians or Chinese these days who have grievances against their governments, who are concerned about the future of their families and are willing to provide sensitive information about those countries, thinking that the United States can use its leverage, its influence to impact some change. That's quite a process with a great deal of risk for mostly the would-be agent and somewhat the case officer as well. So what are you looking for when you're recruiting somebody? Well, the most important thing is access. Do they have access to secrets, the secrets that you need? Uh, you know, so spying, I'll tell you uh, candidly, is fun. I enjoyed it. <laughs> it, was, <laughs> it was great scheming and, and capers here and there, but you don't do it for fun uh, because of the risk involved. You do it to answer a question or questions that are of the greatest need to U.S. policymakers. It sounds pretty difficult work. It's difficult because of the level of responsibility that you have and the level of investment. It's 24-7. You're always on. You're always situationally aware because any slip-up you make could roll back and compromise one of your agents. So it's, it's a stressful job, but it's well worth it in my mind because of the rewards of tangibly seeing the ends of what you've done you know, getting handed a manual of the latest weapon of your most challenging adversary and deconstructing it, finding out about a terrorist operation that you're able to disrupt, able to tangibly think of the lives that have been saved. There's no other reward I see where one individual has that kind of outsized impact for so many. It's not just human assets that require a huge investment to develop. There's also the technology used in collecting intelligence from things like cell phones and satellites. That's known in intelligence parlance as, here comes another acronym, SIGINT, or Signals Intelligence. A lot of SIGINT collection, Signals Intelligence, is extremely difficult and very fragile. And if sources knew suddenly that we were collecting on them, for instance, those would dry up and you don't reconstitute that overnight. Alma Katsu worked for the U.S. National Security Agency in SIGINT for decades. She's what's known as a SIGINTER. For me, as a SIGINTER, knowing what goes in, to be able to put a collection system in place that can get you those very closely held secrets of leadership, to have those just destroyed overnight on a whim, it's, it's unconscionable, actually. And obviously, if you're eavesdropping on a particular foreign leader, the methodology 
for that itself would be highly classified. Extremely classified. I know it takes a little bit of a leap of imagination to think, especially in this day and age where there's so much public surveillance going on. You might think it's a trivial thing, but it's not. I mean, the both technical and physical gyrations you have to go through in order to access those communications are enormous. And you go through that amount of effort in the hope that it's going to pay off for years, right? When it's destroyed, it takes a long time to reconstruct, if ever. So there is a lot of risk with former President Trump having boxes of classified documents unsecured in his busy residence. Risks to methods of intelligence gathering, to human assets, to technological secrets. And then there's some nuclear stuff, allegations in the indictment that Trump had kept at least one document relating to U.S. nuclear secrets. Mark Stout, who's not only a former U.S. intelligence analyst, but also an intelligence historian, says under the law, nuclear secrets are required to be handled differently from other classified information. Trump has argued that as president, he had the right to declassify all the documents found at his home, and therefore he couldn't have broken the law by having them in his possession. That could be a hard argument to win in court, unless there's proof he declassified those documents while he was still president. But according to Stout, it would be impossible to prove in the case of any document containing U.S. nuclear secrets. Everything we've just been talking about comes ultimately out of executive orders. And the first executive order laying out more or less today's classification system was signed in 1951 by Harry Truman. Quite a few of the presidents since have sort of amended it a little bit, but basically Truman put into place the system for most classified information. However, things relating to nuclear weapons are classified in statute, in law, not in executive order. And what's interesting about this is that anything that's classified under the executive order, the president does in fact have unilateral authority to declassify. There's supposed to be a process that goes with that, but he has the unilateral authority to declassify it because the classification is in an executive order. The president does not have the unilateral authority to declassify nuclear weapons related information that's classified under the provisions of the Atomic Energy Act. That requires the concurrence of the Secretary of Energy and in most cases, the uh, Secretary of Defense. And I think it's meaningful that uh, a document classified in the DOE system is on this indictment because President Trump cannot claim to have declassified that because we know there's no paper trail. It would have involved going to the Secretary of Energy and the Secretary of Defense and saying, would you please sign this piece of paper that says this thing is declassified? And as far as anybody knows, there ain't no such piece of paper. Sort of devil's advocate, uh, you know, we all have a pretty good sense of former President Trump as a person. There's nobody bigger or better at the military than I am. He likes to brag. He likes to show off. I understand money better than anybody. I know more about drones than anybody. I know about every form of safety that you can have. Nobody knows the system better than me. I know words. I have the best words. That tendency to brag, notwithstanding, there doesn't seem to be any evidence that any of these documents ended up in the wrong hands, even though... Certainly, he was talking to people who weren't cleared about some of this information. How do you respond to that? Yeah. So as you were just saying in your question, he showed it to at least a handful of people who didn't have security clearances. Well, by definition, that is the wrong hands. 
they may not have been foreign spies. I rather imagine they weren't. But that's not really the issue, or that's not the entire issue. Let's put it that way. The ramparts are defended far away, you know, at a great distance around classified information, because this is something you really, really don't want to take any risk at all in getting it out. So just the alleged fact that he showed it to a political aide and some journalists, that's bad in and of itself, even if it turns out which we can never know for certain, but even if it turns out that it never made its way to Chinese spies or Russian spies or whoever. I play devil's advocate with Douglas London too, pointing out that the indictment reads, quote, the unauthorized disclosure of these documents could put at risk the national security of the United States. Putting the emphasis on could, I asked him if he's seen any evidence in the indictment that Trump actually did anything to compromise national security. I'll give you at least just one concrete example. So from the indictment, we see the president held discussions of these sensitive documents in unsecure spaces, whether it was his office, whether it was a golf course or wherever, or in New Jersey as a facility there. You know, Peter, you and I live in Washington, D.C. The amount of microwaves and radio energy from collection devices that the Russians, the Chinese are using Phenomenal. Think about what they're aiming at the former president. So if he's not in a skiff where signals cannot emanate, they can't penetrate in either direction, so you could have a secure discussion, but he wasn't having these discussions in secure rooms. He was having them in golf courts, in hotel rooms, in, in public facilities, where you could have a line-of-sight device, which I'm sure they did, because we run into them all the time, with a technical surveillance team pointing things his way, and it sounds like it's the movies, but it's really true, collecting conversation, collecting signal emanations. So at a minimum, his conversations, his cell phone emanations, the cell phone emanations of those with whom he was speaking outside of controlled spaces could have been intercepted. I asked all three of these longtime intelligence officials what their reaction was when they first read the indictment. So I, I find it, I'll go with appalling. Uh, gut-wrenching nausea. Well, you know, understanding it as an intel officer means uh, this doesn't tell the whole story of the potential damage. This is an indictment. So this is what the Department of Justice is bringing forward that it believes it can prosecute and that it believes it can expose in the court process. We don't know just from the indictment the full extent of the damage. We just know what the Department of Justice believes it has the confidence it can prosecute. The indictment outlines two events in detail in which Trump allegedly discussed classified information and showed a classified document to other unauthorized individuals. One occasion was a discussion with a writer and a publisher, and the other was with a member of a Trump political action committee. So if those are the two cases they have confidence they could prosecute, how many other cases are there where the president shared sensitive information with who knows who, that it could have been then further disseminated to hostile adversaries who would use that information to compromise our sources and our capabilities. And that's basically the whole point of keeping secret documents under tight control. Once it's beyond that tight control, it's anyone's guess who might get a hold of it and how they might use it. At the heart of the case of United States of America versus Donald J. Trump, are the 31 classified documents that Trump allegedly kept at his Mar-a-Lago club. Trump has denied all the charges against him. But as you've heard from three longtime U.S. intelligence officers and analysts, 
Based on what can be gleaned from the indictment, those documents contain some of the most sensitive secrets gathered by the U.S. intelligence community. And as someone who's covered U.S. national security for decades, one thing I know for damn sure is the men and women who work in the U.S. intel community take extraordinarily seriously their duty to protect the nation's secrets. For someone who aspires to be commander-in-chief again, a role whose first duty is to the nation's security, Trump's alleged behavior strongly suggests he either doesn't understand or doesn't care about this fundamental duty. If you are interested in knowing some more about the issues and stories we discuss in this episode, we recommend Douglas London's The Recruiter, Spying and the Lost Art of American Intelligence, Mark Stout's forthcoming book, World War I and the Foundations of American Intelligence, and Red Widow, a novel by Alma Katsu that draws upon her long service in the U.S. intelligence community. You'll hear much more from Katsu in an upcoming episode on what's true and what's not in great spy novels. In the Room with Peter Bergen is an Audible original, produced by Audible Studios and Fresh Produce Media. This episode was produced by Alison Craiglow, with help from Alexandra Salomon, Laura Tillman, and Holly DeMuth. Katie McMurrin is our technical director, and our staff also includes Eric German, Luke Cregan, and Sandy Malera. Theme music is by Joel Picard. Our executive producers for Fresh Produce Media are Colin Moore, Jason Ross, and Joe Killian. Our head of development is Julian Ambler. Our head of production is Elena Bavietz. Eliza Lambert is our supervising producer. Maureen Trainer is our head of operations. Our production manager is Hermenio Ochoa. Our production coordinator is Henry Koch. And our delivery coordinator is Anna Paula Martinez. Head of Audible Studios, Zola Mashriki. Executive Vice President, Head of US Content, Rachel Giazza. Head of Content Acquisition and Development and Partnerships, Pat Shah. Special thanks to Marlon Calby, Alison Weber, and Vanessa Harris. Copyright 2023 by Audible Originals, LLC. Sound recording copyright 2023 by Audible Originals, LLC. 